So, Nicolas Bornos of Capital Inc., I'd like to welcome you to this uh, session, another session uh, in our uh, forum today. Uh, this session uh, is focusing on a particularly interesting topic. The uh, closed-end fund IPO market has been going through a period of strength. Uh, so, we have a great uh, group of panelists who will take us through uh, the market dynamics. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Dave Finbar and Stephen very much for uh, their participation. And of course, Jeffrey Lemaster uh, from Clifford Chance, who is going to be our moderator. So, Jeffrey, I'm turning the floor to you and thank you to all of you for, uh, for joining. Well, thank you so much, Nicholas. And, and everyone, thank you, as Nicholas said, for, for joining our session this afternoon. I know I can speak on behalf of the rest of the panelists to say we would have preferred to have been in person. Uh, but uh, we're, we're always hopeful for, for next year. I just pray that we don't have to say that next year. Uh, so maybe without further ado, I can introduce uh, our esteemed panelist here. Uh, so Dave Lamb is a Senior Managing Director and Head of Closed End Funds at Nuveen. Uh, there's Stephen Menard, Director at BlackRock, and Finbar Ward, a Vice President at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. And maybe before I launch into to questions of our esteemed panelists, maybe I'll set the stage for just a moment around where we are kind of in the closed end fund market and what we'll call CEF 2.0 land, which I think we all generally agree began beginning of 2019. There was 25 closed end funds that or approximately 25 that have been brought to market since the beginning of 2019. Uh, and I think just to give you a sense of what some of the recent raises are, I'm going to run through the, the dollar amounts that have been raised in, in 2021. This assumes the exercise of the overlotment in full. 2.23 billion, 506 million, 4.9 billion, I mean, that number is astronomical, 661 million, 1.1, sorry, 1.71 billion, 1.13 billion, 667 million, and 2.33 billion. I've been doing this for about 15 years. I can tell you that is more billions that I have seen um, uh, on probably all the deals combined, much less than a single year. So clearly a, a very impressive run for closed end funds as of late. So Finbar, maybe turning to you first, um, from just an overarching perspective, what are the terms that you're generally seeing in the market these days associated with what we'll call CEF 2.0 land? Hi, Jeff, and thanks to you and everyone at Capital Link for, for having me today. So, so let's see, I started uh, in the closed end fund business in 2016, I recall, and the structure back then was a five to seven year target term structure with a client paid sales load. And fast forward to today, the structure has evolved into generally a 12 year term structure with the issuer paying not just the sales load, but all upfront expenses. And as a result of, I guess, the attractiveness of that proposition to investors, what we have seen here at Morgan Stanley is we, is we have seen an increased participation rate amongst our advisors with each and every new issue that comes to market. And that's reflected in the numbers that you outlined at the start. And the reason that is, is that every issuer that comes to market with a new closed-end fund, they leverage their relationships to introduce FAs to the new structure and educate them on the benefits of it. And in particular, what we've noticed, especially over the course of this year, 
is amongst our financial advisors, we've noticed an increase in participation amongst our private wealth advisors. Oh, thanks. thanks for that, Finbar. And, and I guess maybe other than the new terms that we're seeing in the closed-end fund market, you know, what other differences are you generally seeing of the closed-end funds of today versus what we would have sent, seen caught five, ten years ago? So I'll, I'll go back to uh, 2016 uh, again, Jeff. And back then, most of the product, at least most of the product that I work with, worked with rather, was fixed income. And even within that, I think 70% of the underlying was high yield um, corporate credit. And today, while closed-end funds are primarily used by our advisors for income, or you know, or, or by investors or their clients. The underlying use to achieve that varies. Some funds have allocations to equity securities, for example. Some use fixed income securities and some a combination of both. But in general, there are also other, um, you know, other innovative uh, um, terms, if, if you will, that are used within the structure to achieve the objectives. So some funds have a dedicated private sleeve, allowing investors access to illiquid securities that they otherwise may not get access to in a product with daily liquidity. Some funds continue to, to use leverage, some do not. And more often than not, we see funds use an options overlay strategy to generate income and enhance returns. And what all this has led to is a more differentiated set of products that we had in the past. And it gives investors access to themes or sectors that they may not have had access to under the old structure. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're, we're kind of seeing the, the same. And, and I think a follow on to that, Dave, obviously Finbar brought up the idea of differentiated strategies, the, the new terms that we're seeing in the closed end market more generally. Uh, and how have, have you, though, seen that translate in terms of, of the, the closed-end fund investor base at, at Naveen? Well, well, thanks, Jeff, and, and uh, really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Uh, to put it into context, I think Finbar mentioned he's joined the um, Morgan Stanley in 2016. I just celebrated my 30th year at Naveen, so I've seen uh, the transformation of not only Naveen's business, but the closed-end fund space. And, that touches upon the evolution, what I'm seeing in, in how investors are using closed-end funds. You know, historically, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, closed-end fund investors typically being, you know, uh, older investors that are, are near or in retirement. You know, they're seeking attractive levels of regular income, which oftentimes may replace a paycheck, you know, that uh, a shareholder no longer receives. I, I think that still is the dominant um, focus of investors. But, you know, as Finbar mentioned, you know, the new differentiated strategies may have uh, access plays, democratizing access to privates, for example, for as low as a $2,000 investment. So I think we are, in addition to seeing new advisors come into the space, I think we are seeing uh, still an evolution in, in investors coming into closed-end funds for, for things other than just income, maybe total return, you know, in, in uh, utilizing some of the differentiated strategies to, to gain access. So that's what 
we're seeing today, and I think it's going to continue in the future. I think I had heard at a, a different conference, maybe even a year or two ago, that the closed-end fund investor base was made up by 50% new investors versus what we would have seen a decade ago. I think that's really a credit to what this new uh, this new structure and, and differentiated strategies provide for, I think, to your point, Dave. Absolutely. So I think, uh, you know, Stephen, obviously BlackRock, um, while, while you may not have been in the closed-end fund business for the last 30 years like, like Dave, um, BlackRock has been. I think I just discovered as part of the prep for this panel uh, that BlackRock was actually started as a, a closed-end fund back in, in 1988. So for all of us, um, there's still a chance for us to create a, a new BlackRock by starting a, a closed-end fund. Uh, don't worry, Stephen, we're not coming after your job anytime soon. Um, but but see, what are you seeing as kind of the main advantages of, of the closed-end fund structure today? Yeah, thanks, Jeff, and, and appreciate uh, the time here. Um, you know, so what we've kind of seen uh, over the years is that, uh, you know, the closed-end fund structure uh, has been used as, you know, as David mentioned, really as an access play, but that, you know, that, you know, term access has really kind of evolved over the years, right? You know, back in the early 2000s, before I was in this business, um, you know, there were a lot of uh, country funds that were started because, uh, you know, that was a time before uh, ETFs were uh, were even a product uh, or a viable product. And so uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of closed-end funds were launched to, to provide access to um, to individual countries or regions outside the U.S. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of you know, our existing products and, and, you know, kind of what was built throughout the um, early 2000s and, and into 2010s is, is you, know, you know, the access to credit markets and um, leverage to uh, achieve that income that David mentioned. And um, what we've seen more recently is that, um, you know, we're, we're now seeing a lot of funds being, uh, being launched with providing that access to private markets, whether it be equity, uh, debt, or combination of the two. And I, I think that's just a natural evolution here as we've seen a growth in private markets in general. Um, you know, you're seeing uh, a decline in the number of public equities out there and subsequently a growth in, in the number of private companies. And so, um, you know, investors that don't have access to uh, that private market are missing out on uh, significant growth opportunities in the equity markets. Uh, similarly, in the credit markets, um, what we've seen since the financial crisis is that um, you know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of banks have kind of stepped away um, in in terms of um, providing balance sheet, um, and that's led to uh, you know that business transferring over to the asset management world. Um, you know, and, and uh, the benefit of investing in, in in things like private credit is that um, we have a say in how these deals are structured, um, and so you get not only the illiquidity premium but also the complexity premium, um, which can help solve uh, investor challenges for both income and return going forward. Um, you know, I, I was just taking a look at uh, our capital market assumptions uh, over the next five years. And when I, you know, I look at public equities um, expected to deliver somewhere in the mid single digits, uh, compare that to private equity at 20% uh, annualized. Um, you know, similarly in the private credit side, um, you know, we're expecting that you know, private or public credit, excuse me, to be uh, relatively flat over the next five years. Whereas um, in the private credit world, we're, we're, we're forecasting somewhere around 10% annualized returns. So you're getting, again, higher return and also higher income potential um, by accessing these, these private markets and in a really retail friendly structure, right? Dave mentioned, um, you know, very low minimums, at, you know, typical minimum on these products is $2,000 at IPO. Um, you know, you get daily liquidity at the market price uh, no performance fees, 
no K-1s. Uh, this is a 1099 tax reporting. Uh, and then you do get that 100% liquidity through that term trust, uh, that, that limited term trust structure, um, you know, uh, at the end of that 12-year term. So, um, you know, again, I think this is uh, only benefiting uh, our client base in terms of providing that access. And every single one of the products that BlackRock's brought to the market over the last few years has had the ability to invest at least 25% of its portfolio in, in these private credit uh, and private equity investments. Yeah, and, and actually we were, we were just talking before we, we all came, I guess, on the air since we're uh, on person about um, potential changes that uh, I guess we all hope may come coming down the pike uh, from Congress with uh, potentially allowing for even greater investment in, in private funds by, by closed end funds. And so it'll be interesting to see if, if that comes to fruition in what is a um, maybe less than Wall Street friendly administration right now with the SEC. So Finbar, uh, uh, one of the aspects of the, the closed-end fund structure that, that you mentioned at the outset was the, the presence of the 12-year term, uh, the limited term structure, uh, which was very different from what would be the closed-end funds of 15 years ago when I started, where there were no terms at all. And then when 2016, when you had started, where it was a five to seven, now we're at 12. From your perspective, you know, from an underwriter's perspective, why does the limited term kind of make so much sense? I think so. So always and ever, when we, you know, when we look at these products, um, that issue was bring to market. We put ourselves in the seat of the financial advisor, and I think practically it makes a lot of sense, right? Their clients get into these products at NAV, they clip a coupon over the, you know, over the twelve-year term, and then at the end of the term, they liquidate their shares and get NAV at that point in time. So ultimately, I think, you know, from an investor standpoint, it makes sense. Um, from a, a financial advisor standpoint, um, it's certainly something that, um, you know, they, they definitely, given all the work that issuers put into educating them, they have everything that they need to educate their clients. And from our standpoint, um, you know, it just makes it more feasible for us to bring these products to market today. And in, in, in how have you seen the term structure uh, play out in, in the secondary market in terms of reducing the discount? Has it been, in your mind, relatively successful in that endeavor? I, it, it's still early days, right? So they, you know, the first iteration of this new structure was introduced to the market in January of um, 2019. So we're two years and nine months into this. But to your point, Jeff, I mean, um, these funds were tested, I guess, during the market-induced volatility um, last year. And I think if you look at how they performed during and after that time period, I think they've done quite well. Um, I, I it, you know, in, in my opinion, just in conversations that I've had with advisors, uh, I think they see an improvement in, uh, in the trading of these products um, since the, you know, since the advent of the new structure and the fact that when these funds go into the secondary market on day one, there's no disconnect between issue price and NAV. So I think that has certainly helped with the secondary market trading dynamics. Jeff, I, I, I might add uh, on this, um, while I'm not speaking to the new version of the 12-year uh, term structure, uh, Nuveen and, and others have had term funds that have now approved 
termination date. And one observation is as you move closer to that term date, you, you tend to see the secondary market price trade closer and, and around uh, the NAV. So certainly on these new 12-year terms, maybe in the initial uh, period of, of the life of that fund, it, it may trade on its own and may move up and down with market demand. As you move through the life of the fund, you will start to see that term provision of delivering the NAV that Finbar mentioned come into play where the price will tend to hug uh, the NAV more closely. And one more thing to add, sorry. Um, but, you know, I think the other, um, you know, element of these offerings in general has been the use of what we consider to be a managed distribution policy. So, uh, again, another way to, um, you know, draw demand for these products um, uh, and, and, and help uh, maintain uh, a narrow discount or even hopefully uh, funds trading at premium. So, a managed distribution essentially just allows us to pay, pay out different sources of the return, uh, not just only income. Uh, but, you know, in, a, in an equity portfolio, for instance, you can utilize uh, capital appreciation to fund uh, what typically is a monthly distribution rate and, and generate a higher uh, income uh, or yield uh, relative to what you would get uh, in, in, other, uh, in other investment products. And so uh, that's another tool that uh, asset managers in the closed end space uh, often utilize to, uh, again, you know, help manage the discount, deliver a higher income, but also uh, not only just a higher level of income, but also more uh, sustainable, uh, consistent level of income month to month. No, thank you, gentlemen, for, for that. And actually, I guess turning both to, to Stephen, to you and, and Dave, we, we heard from Finbar about why the term structure makes so much sense from, from kind of the underwriter's perspective or the investor's perspective at, at the IPO stage. But I'd love to get your thoughts on what I'll call kind of the opposite end of, of the closed-end fund life cycle as it's starting to, to come, as you said, Dave, closer to the, the end of the, the term. So, you know, more specifically, kind of how are our managers thinking about that, the end of that term? Uh, and so maybe, Stephen, a question for you. You know, what are the typical aspects uh, of the end of a limited term that, that BlackRock is including as part of its current closed-end funds? You know, for example, conversion options, et cetera. Sure. Um, in, in, in the prospectus language, it's, it's uh, considered uh, or termed a contingent conversion feature. And essentially uh, what that means is that in that 12th year of the fund's life, uh, we'll offer what they call a tender offer um, for 100% of shares outstanding at net asset value. So uh, any shareholders at that time can simply put their shares back to the fund. The fund will repurchase those uh, at NAV. Um, and so clients, again, get that liquidity at NAV. Um, there is, a, uh, again, there's a contingency on that. Um, so it, you know, it differs by deal in the case of the BlackRock funds. Uh, it's been that if uh, at least $200 million would remain in the fund post that tender offer, um, we would go ahead and proceed with the tender offer, repurchase those shares, and then at that time, the fund would continue to trade. Uh, and the, and um, uh, the, the fund's board could determine uh, you know, that, uh, whether, whether or not they want to liquidate at that 12th year uh, or continue as a perpetual fund. Um, vice versa, if there were to be less than $200 million uh, in the fund post that tender offer, the tender offer would actually be canceled uh, and the fund would just proceed to liquidate at the end of that 12th year. And, um, you know, I think that in the case of at least our funds at $200 million, again, we just want to make sure that, um, 
you know, that these, these products remain viable uh, post that liquidity event. So, uh, you know, we think that anything below $200 million might, uh, might uh, be less liquid and might not trade that well in the secondary market. And so that's why we've, we've chosen that $200 million level. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and Dave, I guess just coming to you, from your perspective, is that generally what you're seeing in the market in terms of the, the end of the term or the contingent feature? Um, or is there any other structures that, that Nuveen is currently employing as part of its closed-end funds? Well, well certainly uh, the, the new generation, the 2.0 uh, version since 2019, have generally had those standard features. Uh, you know, uh, Stephen mentions the $200 million level. I, I would note that some sponsors have been silent on that. Some have other minimum levels, but generally that, that conversion feature is pretty standard uh, for the new products. Now, prior to the 2019 version, certainly Nuveen uh, brought to market and other sponsors um, funds that had shorter term features, you know, anywhere from three to seven years, you know, uh, we, we call them target ter term funds that had portfolio maturity profiles that align with the term dates. Um, these, these fund, those funds generally had a dual mandate of, of delivering attractive levels of income with a goal of delivering the original net asset value back to shareholders at term date. So there, there are other types of term structures out there. I, will, I would say in this current environment, um, in, in, I noted on an earlier uh, panel around the um, industry roundtable, you know, it, it was mentioned that underwriters, it's been much more competitive, more selective. You know, there's generally one deal that's targeted a month. Um, right now in this environment, I wouldn't see the target date, um, target term funds being part of the mix today. But at some point in the future, you know, as things change, they, they may come back. Yeah, I think if someone had told me a decade ago that the sponsors would be paying all of the underwriting commissions, um, I wouldn't have thought that was going to happen. So you never really, as you said, Dave, know what's going to yeah. happen down the road. Well, and it is an interesting dynamic. It caused a lot of fund sponsors to pause and think about it. You have to then reassess the, you know, the economics. Does it still make sense? I mean, in the case of BlackRock, you know, in one of their deals, you know, they were writing a $180 million <laughs> check up front. And quite frankly, some I, fund sponsors probably can't do that. So, um, yeah, it, it has changed the, you know, the, the financial and, and other considerations up front. Did I get that amount about right, Stephen? I, I noticed Stephen is silent right now. He, he remains <laughs> on mute. <laughs> uh, I had to process the invoices. That was a... That was a <laughs> Well, well, Dave, both you and, and Stephen had mentioned uh, kind of the potential conversion to a perpetual fund. What are some of the key aspects that, that the board at, at Nuveen is is generally considering as, as it contemplates that potential conversion? Yeah, and, and we've had some experience recently with uh, some funds reaching uh, term dates. And in, in some certain cases, we've liquidated funds, and in other cases, we have proposed converting, you know, the fund and the strategy to a perpetual fund. You know, I, I would say, board, and I believe other boards will be focused on clearly what's best for shareholders based on uh, the facts and circumstances for that particular fund as it uh, uh, approaches its term date. I, I would say boards will likely consider, you know, market demand for the specific fund and its asset class. You know, one clear uh, view of that is how is the fund trading? How are the peers in a similar asset class trading? Um, 
you know, is it trading, you know, uh, near par or above par? Now, I would note that if, if it is a target term, that individual fund likely will be trading close to, to NAV. So I think it's beneficial to look at, you know, more broad uh, indicators of market demand. So that's, that's one thing. And, and really along those that same line of reasoning, the fund's portfolio may, may contain investments and in, in, in yields on those in investments that you know, cannot be replaced in the current market environment. So that could be another consideration in, you know, it, it, could it be beneficial for that fund to continue on in the future and deliver, you know, uh, outsized um, uh, returns or yields to shareholders? And, and finally, I think boards, you know, also will consider, you know, the potential for, you know, realization of gains, you know, it goes along the same line of rationale. If an asset class is in demand, you're seeing appreciated assets. You know, if you have to fully liquidate, you know, a fund, you may end up uh, delivering a, a capital gains tax bill to shareholders. So those are some of the, I think, broad considerations. And, and there's probably others. Um, you would want to ensure that you have, as Stephen mentioned, you know, a minimum scale uh, you know, of converting a fund to perpetual and after a tender that you, you know, can officially run the portfolio that will, you know, have enough liquidity in the secondary market. So there's other additional considerations I, I believe fund boards will, will look at, at at the time um, when they reach uh, the term date. And actually, Stephen, on, on that point, obviously, as you get closer, and, and Dave kind of mentioned it, you're getting closer to the end of, of the term you're going to have to consider how you are managing the, the the portfolio itself, and you know how do you really kind of manage um, around that that 12 year structure from an investment perspective? Yeah, sure. So uh, you know, when as I mentioned up up front, that we you know we do have uh, an element of these portfolios in in private and in less liquid investments, and so um, yeah, that is a consideration from day one. Um, you know, typically in a you know private unregistered vehicle, that's you know pure private equity. Um, what you see in those vehicles is that um, you know they once they have an exit, um, they just simply pay that back to their uh, to their investors. Um, the beauty of the closed end fund structure is that you know. When we have exits or liquidity uh, events in in our portfolio, we can reinvest that capital back into other private investments or other uh, public uh, equities, or continue to hold the company. And I think actually that's one of the um, you know one of the selling points for BlackRock as a uh, investor in these uh, in these private companies is that they want you know they want BlackRock in these investments because they know we're long term holders. And um, so that I think that is just a critical element of you know uh, you know the the sourcing of these private investments. But you know in terms of managing that, that liquidity profile, uh, I would you know just reiterate that it is only up to twenty five percent, and uh, you know we we do have um, some internal uh, mechanisms built in to make sure that we we have uh, ample liquidity as we approach that uh, liquidity event in in year twelve, and so that would be considering you know the, the life of the investments and um, you know making sure that we don't have any type of tail risk beyond that that year twelve. Um, there is also, uh, you know, language built into the prospectus that allows us to uh, extend the life of the trust if there, uh, if it was necessary. I would note that at least in BlackRock's uh, case, we've never had to use that, um, but it is a backstop in the case that you know you are in an opportune time. You don't want to simply liquidate just to get liquidity uh, and uh, you know have a bad execution for shareholders. So uh, we do reserve the right to extend the life of the fund. Um, you know, with board approval, if, if necessary. Uh, thank you for that, Stephen. I think we have 
about five or 10 minutes left. So I think maybe what we'll do is, is turn to a little bit of, of crystal balling for what um, each of you may expect to see coming down the pike here. Um, so maybe we'll start, same question for each of our, our three panelists. Um, we'll, we'll kick off Finbar with you, but what are you really expecting to see in the closed end fund market over the, the short and, and medium term? So we started off the call, I guess, Jeff, you know, we talked about how the term has moved from a five to seven to 12 year. Um, and uh, in addition to that, how it's no longer a client paid sales load, it's an issuer paid load. And what we've seen as a result of that is, you know, I go back to my original statement about the increase in our user base amongst our financial advisors here at Morgan Stanley. And the proof of course is in the numbers. So in the short term, I don't expect there to be, um, you know, much appetite to go beyond that 12 year term structure. I think we have conditioned the market for that. Um, advisors have come to accept that um, and, and they seem comfortable with it. Um, there may be some extension in the medium to long term, but for now, as I said, I, I think the market is conditioned for that. Where I, um, you know, where I do see, um, you know, some scope for creativity, if you will, and product expansion is the fact that given that the advisor base has increased, um, now there are more eyes on these new issues. So I expect issuers such as my, you know, my fellow, fellow panelists here to have um, their boots on the ground, reach out to advisors and see where the appetite is for exposure to themes or sectors within this new structure. So going forward, I, in the short term at least, I expect to see, see a continued um, diverse and differentiated product set. So Dave, maybe same question to you. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I, I've, I've witnessed this for, for a little <laughs> over 30 years now in, in the days of, of bringing your third, fourth, fifth state fund, state muni fund. I, th I think certainly those days are over. Uh, uh, Finbar mentioned, and Stephen has touched upon this as well, I, I, I think we'll continue to see, you know, um, uh, differentiated products that provide access plays to various um, um, asset classes. Uh, I think the structure itself will, I think will continue. I, I think it, it, it allows an investment manager to take a longer term view of what they're investing in and let those themes play out, which is, you know, perfect for something as Stephen has mentioned, you know, you know, private sleeves. I think we'll continue to see uh, the types of investments evolve and alternatives, I, I think are, you know, clearly prime for being in a structure that doesn't have to stand ready to redeem assets on a daily basis. So um, ESG, uh, you know, we, we've seen a couple deals that will continue to see um, um, products that have that tilt as well. It ultimately comes down to delivering what the advisor and client wants. And I, I think it's clear uh, by the, the capital being raised this year that having differentiated access plays is, is attracting, um, you know, meaningful assets into closed end funds. And from, from our investment manager's perspective, I mean, they love managing assets in a closed end fund wrapper. It allows them to deliver over time, excess returns, excess income, you, you can deliver more 
um, again, you don't have to have you know the you know the the liquid assets sitting there to redeem shares on a daily basis. So I think we'll continue to see those themes. And I think Stephen, I, I might have stepped in front of you on a few comments because I'm guessing that's what you're seeing as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah Stephen, I mean, fire I'm, away. I don't I don't want to step in your in your way either. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get <laughs> out of the way. No, I, I would agree with everything that, um, you know, Dave and Finbar have, have already highlighted. Um, you know, I think definitely the 12-year the term structure is something that we've, um, you know, kind of circled around. And, um, you know, like I said, every single one of our uh, funds that have been launched since 2019, uh, we've done five of them, all have had the 12-year term. I think that that makes sense, um, you know, both from an investment uh, landscape perspective, right? I think you need a long enough period of time, especially if you're going into these private markets where you can let that strategy play out. Um, you also need uh, time to recoup those upfront fees that David highlighted. Um, so I think it needs, it needs to make economic sense to the manager as well um, to, keep, uh, to keep new products coming in this market. Um, but, uh, you know, when it comes to the, the types of strategies that we're, you know, that we're thinking about launching, um, you know, I think we also are, con you know, considerate of the market environment, right? I mean, if you look at where yields are today in munis and, and most credit assets, it's very difficult to, to launch a fund that pays a, you know, competitive yield with something in the secondary market that, you know, has those legacy bonds that have higher book yields or trades at a discount. So just naturally has, a, you know, a higher yield. And so those are some things that you need to consider, um, you know, when you're bringing a new product to market. Um, you know, we, we've uh, we've primarily focused in the equity space, which um, you know, uh, you, you know, it has been uh, a, a bit of a differentiator for us. Um, but also, I would I would highlight some of the comments that Dave made around the you know the in increasing investor base, in particular, um, you know, the the types of clients, not just the advisors, um, but the types of clients that are investing in these products uh, tend to be higher net worth. We're seeing um, you know not only more more advisors, just you know throwing out a couple stats in the you know, in the old, uh, what I would consider traditional closed infant IPO structure, we were reaching about one and a half thousand advisors. Uh, in the 2.0 structure, we've reached about 7,000 advisors. So um, grown exponentially in terms of the, the buyer base. Um, but the, um, you know, we're also, uh, you know, uh, talking to larger producers. Um, you know, the, uh, just another stat here uh, in our offering earlier this year, um, you know, sales uh, from advisors with over $500 million in assets under management, um, you know, where it was 381 million uh, in, in that deal. Uh, versus our first deal in this new structure, which was 71 million. So uh, over a 400% increase uh, from those types of advisors and also much larger ticket sizes. The average ticket size in the old structure was about 40,000. Today, we're seeing it about 70,000. So, um, you know, not only more advisors, higher net worth uh, clients. Uh, and also, I think that's going to pan out well in the secondary market because, um, you know, the more people that are interested in this space creates more demand better uh, better trading dynamics in that secondary market. No, thank you, gentlemen, for the uh, the insight. I think we've, we had a couple of questions that actually came through. And so um, I think maybe the first, Stephen, I'll, I'll go to you just because I think it's uh, based on the, the size of some of your raises, this is gonna be in your wheelhouse. But I think, um, you know, as we ran through the, the kind of the raise that we've seen here in, in 2021, um, somebody, rightfully pointed out there's a lot of billions in in that those numbers and so is is bigger necessarily better and i guess the question maybe put a finer point on it Stephen, is, is how are you thinking about it from an investment perspective you know when you're having to invest 
you know, four and a half billion dollars from a closed end fund versus, you know, what could be a $500 million raise. I, I assume there's different aspects to be considered. So how do you kind of manage all of that? Yeah, I think it depends on uh, the strategy there in terms of the, you know, the capital that we can raise in any one fund. Um, you know, the, the fund that you're referencing, Big Z, which, you know, is a $5 billion raise, you know, is investing in public equities. Uh, yeah, it has, has that private component to it. Um, but, uh, you know, ample liquidity in the types of companies that we're uh, investing in on the public side. And to my, you know, it, I would make the point that the more capital that you raise, the better sourcing and opportunities you get in the private markets as well. Um, so I, I, I do think size is better uh, in this, uh, you know, in closed end funds, um, not just from an investment perspective, but also um, in terms of, uh, you know, secondary market liquidity, um, you know, larger funds, are, you know, with larger market caps are going to trade uh, more during the day, again, allowing uh, more uh, types of investors to invest in these types of products, not just individual retail investors, but also institutions. Um, and then, uh, you know, you also have lower expenses, uh, you know, for, for the end investor as well. So I, I do think size is better. And you're definitely seeing that, you know, outside of the IPO market, look at, you know, look, look at what's happening, uh, you know, to existing funds with all the mergers that are happening in the closed end fund market, uh, only producing, you know, uh, I think a, a better landscape for, uh, for investors. No, it makes, makes absolute sense. Um, so one of the things Dave, I think, pointed out earlier was the size of, of some of these checks that sponsors are having to write. Um, and, and obviously they're somewhat staggering depending on the size of the, the deal. So the question that came in is, you know, how do managers that don't have the resources of a BlackRock, for example, you know, how are they thinking about paying for these upfront fees? And, and maybe Finbar, maybe we can come to you on that, being that you, you see a kind of a wide universe of, of managers what are some of the discussions that you're having with managers as they're thinking about having to write these kind of large checks up front? Um, so, so I guess for some of them, it's, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it, it, it's a bigger upfront uh, cost to incur than it is for, um, you know, for the, the other large asset manager that, that you mentioned. Um, and in general, you know, while, you know, while while that may be the the view, Jeff, I think that managers see the overall benefit of managing a twelve year term structure, and at some stage, you know, they will break even on the revenue generated from managing those assets. It has never come up in conversation, right? That some managers may have to, um, you know, may have to find alternative resources to pay the upfront fees. I think the issuers that have come to market since January 2019 have the resource. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, while for some it may be a bigger burden to incur upfront than for others, I think overall the benefit of the 12-year term structure is that at some point in time, um, you know, they, they, the, the issuer and or the fund manager will begin to generate enough returns to repay those expenses. No, thank you. And I, and I think... I think we have come to the end of our session. So Nicholas, with that, I'll turn it back over to you. Well, all, all I would like to say is uh, a big thank you. Uh, this was a very interesting discussion. You covered uh, a key topic for the industry. And again, thank you to all of you for your participation and, and support. We couldn't have done it without you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone. And I know that next year, uh, Jeffrey, as you mentioned, we all hope to be in person. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.